in a former job working for a church on the east side of London. I used to uh, live on the, uh, an estate, the Middlesex Street estate, which was connected with a couple of others in the area, the Mansell Street and Golden Lane estates. And uh, over at Golden Lane, we'd done a lot of visiting, and there was a couple we'd got to know there called Jonathan and Shereel. And uh, Portia, one of the ladies on our visiting team, and myself, were asked to be godparents to uh, Jonathan and Shereel's daughter, Zabella. So uh, the baptism happened, and we were at uh, the you know, TNK post-baptism party afterwards, and I got chatting to Jonathan's dad, uh, a man named Keith. And what I'd never known, what Jonathan had never mentioned, was that Jonathan had had an older brother. But Jonathan's older brother had contracted leukemia when he was six years old. And Keith told me how they used to go and visit him in the hospital every single day. But there was a little girl in that ward who no one ever visited. Uh, she was you know, young, similar age to, to Keith's son, and bright ginger hair, and a scar that ran from above one eye all the way across the top of her head down to the back of her neck from where they removed a tumour. But no one visited her, and so Keith asked the nurses one day if he could take her out for a walk, and uh, so they walked around the hospital, and I remember him saying, you know, she held his hand so tightly, and they walked around, and then he got once and he said, oh, time to go back in now. And she just looked up at him, didn't say a word, but shook her head. And so Keith said he walked around with her again. And he told me that of the 19 children on that ward, 18 died. The only survivor was Keith's son, who lived until he was 11, at which point the leukemia returned and he was dead within six months. And Keith looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, and that's why I don't believe in God. Rabbi Harold Kushner, um, his son was three years old when he was diagnosed with progeria, which is a condition that causes rapid aging. Uh, he died aged 14. And out of his grief, Kushner wrote the now famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. In the introduction to the book, he writes this. There is only one question which really matters. Why do bad things happen to good people? All other theological conversation is intellectually diverting. Somewhat like doing the crossword puzzle in the Sunday paper and feeling somewhat satisfied when you've made the words fit. But ultimately without the capacity to reach people where they really care. Virtually every meaningful conversation I've had with people on the subject of religion and God has either started with this question or got around to it before too long. It's a moving and a thought-provoking book. I don't agree with his answers. I think he departs from what the Bible says in his conclusions. But he's on point with the fact that so, for so many people, all questions about faith either begin or end with this question of suffering and evil. For my dad, who is not a Christian, it's a very personal question. When I was 10 years old, my dad's parents, who were in their early 70s at the time, in good health, uh, were killed in a car crash. My grandfather was burnt alive at the scene and my grandmother died in intensive care a week later. And I've almost never had a serious conversation with my dad about faith that hasn't ended with him saying, where was God that day? For some people, they ask this question, you know, where is God if there is evil in the world, as a sort of an intellectual joust, just a philosophical uh, question. We're gonna think about that a little bit, but mostly we're gonna think about the pastoral comfort there is in what we see in the Bible. Because for some here, it may be personal. I don't know many of you guys well enough to know the suffering that you've seen in your lives. 
but it may have been very deep. So I hope there is some comfort for us. If you've got your Bibles, um, we're we're looking at um, John chapter 11, we're on page 1078. You may want to follow along and see what we're looking at. So we read from verse 17, back just at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is warned in advance that Lazarus has become ill. So we joined in the reading at the point where Lazarus has already died. But in verse 3, um, we're told this, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. But within a few days, Lazarus has died. And by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. And there's one question on everyone's lips. Why didn't Jesus come sooner and heal him while he was still alive? They know that Jesus healed all sorts of people. They, they suspect he could have done it. Uh, Martha suspects it in our reading. We saw verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary down in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly the same. Word for word, which indicates it's probably not the first time they'd said it. They'd said it to one another. If only Jesus would come. And then after Lazarus's death, if only Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. Well, we will come back to the sisters and their question, but it's also asked by the crowd at large. They say this, verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So the crowd think it as well. But they ask the question in a slightly different way. They know that Jesus is powerful. He opened the eyes of a blind man a few days earlier. He'd opened the eyes of a man all born blind. A guy who'd been born without the ability to see. And Jesus had created in those non-functioning eye sockets the ability to see again. He'd created sight where it had never been before. So they know Jesus is powerful. Their question is, well, why didn't he? Why didn't he help? Why did this happen? To Lazarus. They might be saying, well, we can't see any good reason why he didn't choose to save this man. So what is wrong with this Jesus? Or to put it another way, if we had his power, we'd run things differently. If I were God, I'd end all the pain in the world, we might say. So to think about it, think about that question a bit, it's what's traditionally known as the problem of evil. Uh, the, the ancient Greek philosopher long time ago, stated the question this way. He says, look, if a good and all-powerful God exists, then he'd want to end suffering. But there is suffering in the world. So, a good and all-powerful God cannot exist. Some other God may exist, a God who is good and wants to end all suffering, but he's weak, so he can't. Or a God who is... um, who is evil, who is able to stop all the suffering in the world, but he doesn't want to. And at first pass, it's a compelling argument, isn't it? It seems like a pretty watertight argument. But there's an assumption under the second proposition that there is pointless suffering in the world. The assumption is, we can't see the point in the suffering in the world, so there can't be any point to it. But here's the thing. If you can conceive of a God big enough and powerful enough For you to be angry at, or for you to be sad at, for not stopping the evil and suffering in the world, then by definition, that God must also be wise enough to have reasons for allowing our suffering to continue, 
that we might not be able to understand right now. If you can think of a God big enough and powerful enough for you to be angry at him for not stopping the evil and suffering in the world, then by definition, that God must be powerful enough and wise enough to have reasons for allowing evil and suffering to continue that you may not be able to understand right now. But in the midst of our personal sufferings, if we're suffering now or if we're thinking back on suffering we've experienced in the past, that kind of philosophical you know, wordplay, true though it is, is probably not comforting to us. In the midst of suffering, the question is, can I trust God with my suffering? How do I know that he is good? How do I know that he cares? Well, as Christians, we don't ask the question about an abstract notion of God. We have specifics. Because God didn't stay in heaven for us to abstractly philosophize about. He came to earth in Jesus so that we might know what he is like. And as we see him in this passage, we see that he cares. So Mary and Martha, we know from that message that they sent to him at the beginning, Lord, the one whom you love is sick about his brother, they're friends of Jesus. So they already know Jesus to some extent. And they both greet Jesus with those same words of disappointment. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But Jesus gives the two sisters different responses. Look at me at verse 33. After Mary's question, Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That phrase, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, means that he was in anguish, that he was also to some extent angry, angry at death. Verse 34, he asked to see the grave, and they say, come and see. And verse 35, may know this is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But have you ever thought about why? Why does Jesus cry? Jesus at this point knows that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he can't be crying because he misses his friend. He's only just arrived, and he knows that he's going to see his friend again in a few minutes' time. So why does Jesus cry? He weeps at death itself. He weeps at the pain and the disruption that death causes in our world. Death shouldn't come as any surprise to any of us. It's the great certainty. One out of one people die. But every time someone dies, however many funerals you've had to go to in a year, it always feels wrong every time. It always feels like death should not be allowed to shatter life in this way. And Jesus feels that. God in human form at Lazarus' grave weeps. He weeps with us in our pain. God is not removed from suffering, coolly rocking back and forth in a rocking chair in heaven, looking on dispassionately. He comes to earth and he weeps with us. And he weeps because well, Jesus, better than anyone, knows that it's not how the world was supposed to be. Jesus and his Father at the beginning of time made this world good, made it all good. But Jesus saw the moment when we turned against our Creator 
when we turned against him and rebelled, and suffering and pain entered the world in a way that it hadn't been here before. And it is our turning away from God that caused a rupture, a break in the relationship between human and human, a break in the relationship between humans and God, and a break in relationship between humans and our world. Like the cracks in a pane of glass that spread out from the point of impact, so the consequences of our sin, our rebellion against God, spread far and wide in our world. And so in our world we see a world that has echoes of the good world that it once was, but all broken. And doesn't that feel like our world? So work is satisfying, sometimes, and frustrating, often. Relationships can bring great joy, but also some of the deepest pain that we can experience. The natural world is beautiful, but broken, majestic, but also deadly. And when we encounter pain in this world that we cannot understand, something inside us says, this is not how life is supposed to be. Something inside us cries out, why? And that question is a problem for the consistent atheist. Because if we are simply the result of blind physical forces and genetic replication in a blind cosmos that does not and could not know that we exist, then the question why does not make sense past the purely physical processes that led to the suffering. You may remember the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. And after that, many people wrote into the newspapers, sort of engaging with this question, why? Richard Dawkins joined and he wrote this letter to the Guardian. He said simply, in what sense of the word why does plate tectonics not provide the answer? That's the only question we should ask. That's the only answer we'll get. And in Dawkins' famous book, The Reason for God, he's attempting to refute the Christian claim that a world where there's no purpose, i.e. the atheistic world, we've come from nowhere, we're going nowhere, the Christian would say that world is without purpose. And he'd say, yes, it's without purpose, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. He writes this. He's interviewing Jim Watson, scientist Jim Watson. He says, I conscientiously put it to Watson that unlike him, some people see no conflict between science and religion because they claim science is about how things work and religion is about what it is all for. Watson retorted, well, I don't think we're for anything. We're just products of evolution. You can say, gee, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose to life. But I'm anticipating having a good lunch. And Dawkins comments, and we did have a good lunch. Now that's a fine answer when you have a good lunch. But what if you have a bad lunch or no lunch? It's easy to make light of a meaningless universe, the atheistic universe, when you're a comfortable, well-fed Oxford academic. But when you're starving and you don't know where your next meal will come from, then it's quite a different matter. And so if we are tempted to think, or if people we know say to us, I can't believe in God anymore because of the suffering I've been through, 
then we do want to ask the question, after we've listened, after we've mourned with them, we want to ask the question, what are you going to believe instead? I understand why you find it hard to believe in God, but what are you going to believe instead? Because you have to believe something. There is no neutral territory for us to stand on. There's no spiritual Switzerland where you can just believe nothing. If you're going to say there's no God, we came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, and nothing means anything, are you prepared to be consistent with that? So the next time one of your friends is diagnosed with cancer, you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the world we live in. The atheistic world, blind, pitiless indifference. Or the next time one of your friends is in tears because a relationship or a marriage has ended, do you just say, well, you know, it's just the way the world is. If your best friend from school days commits suicide, as mine did in summer 2012, and you go around to the parents, do you just say, blind, pitiless indifference, now go and have a nice lunch. Now maybe someone could do it for a while, and maybe they could even keep it up in the face of real suffering. So Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist to his credit, even in the face of his own throat cancer from which he died, he said to the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? But even if you can live that out inconsistently, does it fit? Does to say that the world has no meaning, no purpose, that none of it means anything, that love isn't real, that pain isn't real, it's all just chemicals in your brain, does that fit with your experience? Jesus' description of the world, Jesus' interaction with the world fits our experience. As he sees the brokenness of this world, as he experiences the pain and the suffering that is in our world, he weeps. It's the right response. Unlike Buddhism, which says, if you're feeling pain at loss, the problem is you loved too much. And the solution is love less, be less attached to things. Unlike Hinduism, who says, which says, the suffering you experience is karma. It is payback for sins in this or a former life. Unlike Islam, which says, how dare you question Allah? All is from his hand and you have no right to question. Unlike atheism, which says, why are you even bothering to ask the question in the first place? Christianity joins with us in our suffering and says tears are the right response. This world is a broken place. It's not how it should be. Jesus fits our experience. But if tears are all Jesus can offer, then you know, we might as well say, well, thanks, Jesus, but that's not a lot of use, is it? Well, tears are not all Jesus can offer. As we read on in the story, of course, we know what happens next. Jesus' command in verse 39 is brief. Take away the stone, he says. Martha, she's the practical one, says to Jesus, well, uh, Jesus, it's four days. By this time, there will be an odour. The old King James Version wonderfully says, My Lord, by now he stinketh. And Jesus turns to Martha, the practical one. And I think he would have said this gently. He says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they take away the stone. And Jesus says just three words, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, 
unbind him and let him go. Well, it's the happy ending we've all been waiting for, isn't it? Lazarus is back. Mary and Martha must have been overjoyed to see their brother again. The suffering is over. But actually, as we read on in John's Gospel, the suffering is not over. Because Jesus coming back to the village of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, was a high-risk option for him. When Jesus says that he's going to go there, his disciples are surprised. And they're surprised because a short time ago in Jerusalem, the Jews had tried to stone Jesus to death for claiming to be God. And so Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, which causes many people to believe in him, turns out to be the final nail in Jesus' own coffin. Read with me verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They said, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Rather than admit that they've been wrong about Jesus, the Pharisees are so worried about losing their status in society that they decide, verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. They decide to kill Jesus, to get rid of him because he's inconvenient. And shortly afterwards, they succeed. They succeed in putting an innocent man to death because it was expedient for the political and religious establishment. And you might then say, how could God allow such pointless suffering? To ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Jesus was truly the only man who has ever lived of whom we could say completely and honestly, he was good. The people who knew him best said that they never once saw or heard him do anything wrong. Jesus did a perfect line. He alone of the entire human race never deserved to suffer in any way. And that is why Jesus' death is the ultimate example of maybe God has reasons for allowing evil and suffering that we can't understand in the moment. You see, as Jesus was mocked, as Jesus was spat on, as Jesus was beaten, as Jesus was nailed to a wooden cross with nails through his hands and feet, as bystanders scoffed, as Pharisees laughed, as soldiers jeered, imagine Jesus' mother standing at the foot of the cross as we know she did. Imagine the sort of grief that pierced her heart. Imagine her asking the question, what possible reason could there be for my son to suffer in this way? The inevitable cry of why. And as followers couldn't see the reason, they walked away. They all fled. It looked like the worst evil in human history. But actually it was the greatest moment in human history. Because where we as a race had failed to live as we should, Jesus succeeded. Where our rebellion against God brought suffering into the world, Jesus' obedience, including going willingly to an unjust death, brought the possibility for reversal of the evil and the suffering in the world. 
And Jesus' death means this. Although I don't know why Keith's son died in the way that he did, and I don't know why my grandparents died in the way that they did, and I don't know why you may have suffered in the way that you have, we can say with absolute certainty, it is not that God doesn't love you. God does love you. He sent his son to die for you. God has wounds. He did not, he did not detach himself from our suffering. He came and shared our grief. He died for us. But one big question remains. If Jesus' death was to end suffering, why does it continue in our world? If it hasn't ended already, what guarantee do we have that it will? Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he meant by that was that his resurrection, because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, his resurrection was a prototype of our resurrection. Jesus' wounds put him into the grave, but they couldn't keep him there. Three days later, he rose fully and physically, still with the scars on his hands and his feet, but not feeling their effects. Numerous eyewitnesses saw him, talked to him, ate with him. And just as the ripening of the first apple in the orchard means that the rest of the harvest is coming, Jesus' resurrection means that all those who put their trust in him will also rise. And therefore, there will be a return to the perfect world that God made in the beginning. One of the most striking Bible descriptions of the renewed world that is coming is notable for its description of a world that is absent of suffering. Revelation 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's a poignant moment right at the end of the third Lord of the Rings books, not in the films, but it's in the books, um, where Sam the Hobbit discovers that Gandalf the wizard is not dead as he had thought, but is alive. And Sam says this, he cries out in joy, I thought you were dead, but then I thought that I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the Christian answer to that question is yes. In Christ, everything sad is going to come untrue. And it's not wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. It's not pie in the sky hope against the evidence. It is hope because of the evidence. Hope because of the evidence of our hearts. But when our hearts cry, why? We don't have to dismiss it as simply a naturalistic, evolved response to help us survive in this cruel world, but we can affirm that love is real, and pain is real, and suffering is real, but also the evidence of history. The coming world of no suffering is as certain as Lazarus standing outside the tomb in the sun, blinking again, looking again at a world that he thought he would never see again. The world that is coming is as certain as Jesus on the shore of Lake Galilee, cooking fish over a fire to eat with his bewildered disciples who thought that they would never see him again. A world with no more cancer, no more car crashes, no more mourning or crying or pain forever. That is the Bible's biggest answer to suffering. 
But there will be a day when it ends for all of those who have put their trust in Christ. That however much suffering we experience in this life, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, it will seem but a slight momentary affliction. 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, we'll look back and we'll understand, even if we can't now. And whatever we face, we can know that God loves us because he gave his son for us. Let me pray and then we'll just say a couple of words about the, the life explored course. Father God, we thank you that whatever life throws at us, we can know. We can know that you love us. You gave us your son so that we might know you and so that we might live for you forever. All those who trust in you can know that there is a world coming where we'll never suffer again. Please help us to fix our eyes on that day. Trust in your son and live for that day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you tell us a bit about the life of the Lord?